that's what we need to do as a country. We need to start looking for higher risk, higher return opportunities. And you would expect me to say this, but early stage startup businesses are the best place to do that for the economy. And, you know, we'll create jobs, we'll fund the businesses that will drive the recovery on the other side of this crisis. Hey there, everyone. Uh, my name is Jason Lim. This is People Building Businesses, a podcast from the team at YBF Ventures. YBF's mission is to help startups to scale, scale-ups to succeed, and corporates to innovate. We do all that from our spaces in Melbourne and Sydney. And if you want to find out more, head over to ybfventures.com. This is our very first podcast since the world's been turned upside down due to the COVID-19 pandemic. And joining us today is the co-founder of Virtual, Matt Vitale. Virtual is an equity crowdfunding platform that allows everyone the opportunity to invest in Australian brands. A few of the recent successes include women's only ride-sharing platform, Shiba, internet of energy startup, Redgrid, who are members here at YBF Melbourne, superannuation startup, Gig Super, and sustainable denim brand, Outland Denim. And those are just among a few of many, many companies that Virtual's really helped to raise investment and get that next ladder up the, the, the steps to success, I suppose. So I'm super keen to figure out how the virtual teams built the company, super keen to figure out how Matt's led the company, and especially during COVID-19, how virtual has navigated the effects of COVID-19. So Matt, welcome to the podcast. Great to have you here. Thanks, Jace. Great to be here. We usually start the podcast in a different way. We usually talk a bit about your background, um, where you grew up, and we'll get to that. But given the world's a bit different today than it was a couple months ago. I wanted to start the podcast a little differently. Um, sure. For the listeners who aren't familiar with Virtual, could you perhaps give us a quick overview of what the company is all about? So, uh, well, Jace, you gave a pretty good introduction before. Um, I'm not sure if I can top that, but let me try. So Virtual is an equity crowdfunding platform. We like to focus on brands that have a strong consumer proposition. It is really about dispersing ownership among people that love businesses and want to be involved in them. Um, it's fairly new in Australia, but this has been a very common way of funding early stage businesses overseas, particularly in the UK for many, many years. The key game changes of, that, that have allowed us to do what we do is that small proprietary limited companies can now have a potentially unlimited number of investors and we can advertise these securities offers online. So that means that brands that have a strong consumer proposition can invite their most passionate customers and advocates to get involved. And it's actually a really powerful thing at scale because rather than just having a few investors, we think businesses are better businesses when they have an army of brand ambassadors that love them and will support them in whatever they do. That's awesome. And um, obviously, you know, the world's changed a lot due to COVID-19 and jumping straight into it. How has the last few months been for you and the business, given the consumer focus of virtual? Um, obviously, retail spending is down now. Consumer spending is down. And also for on the investment side of things, investors seem to be a little more skittish now in terms of making new investments. So how has it really been for virtual? Yeah, I think um, there's probably a few phases that we went through. The initial phase 
it was really just being here for businesses. So we're committed to providing efficient, cost-effective capital uh, to businesses, you know, who are raising money at a critical inflection point and want to grow and, and achieve great things. And we had a lot of businesses in our pipeline that, you know, they're working pretty hard on a, on a cap raise and then the world is crashing down around them. So it was really important to us to be sensitive to what everyone else was going through and really listen, reach out to businesses that we'd funded previously, understand if there was anything that we could do to help, not just in raising capital, but just anything. And that was probably the first phase that we were going through is really just just listening and, and seeing if there were opportunities or anything that we could do to help the businesses that were within our network. We had one campaign that was live during the first escalation of COVID in Australia. It was for the CBIN project. Now, they'd already raised a million dollars. So this was pre-COVID. So, you know, in some sense, they'd put a lot of the hard work uh, behind them and they'd gotten off to a really good start. And it was, you know, a, a pretty nervous few weeks to see how the market would respond because, you know, ASX had dropped 30% in value, there were discussions with large investors that were ongoing, which were difficult to close because naturally they were distracted by other things that were going on. But around 600000 was raised in the last two weeks of that campaign. And that was probably the height of the COVID disruption at the start when people were just really, you know, unpacking what, what this meant for Australia and for the economy, which is an inspirational result because... The campaign was dominated by smaller investors, but it's important to remember CBIN projects. It's um, you can't buy a CBIN. They're, they're they're bins that sit in the water that collect waste plastic. So, the people that were investing in that business were committed to a company that that is serving a higher purpose. You know, cleaning up ocean waste and people with capital were, were still prepared to commit capital to a project like that, even in, you know, perhaps unprecedented um, uncertainty in the economy. So, so that was really encouraging and it really kind of set up what, what has evolved over the, the next few weeks and what's brought us to this point. And I think the theme is that um, we're still able to do deals for companies, but the dominated by smaller investors. So the deals look a little bit different. They're perhaps not as large and the larger check sizes are perhaps harder to come by, but that's what crowdfunding does really well. We put large groups of people committing small amounts of capital together so companies can achieve great things. And we've since gone on to raise for Indigo Power, um, which is a regional solar grid for a regional area in Victoria. They hit their maximum target of 300,000 in a few days. And you mentioned Outland Denim as well. So it's another, you know, great brand with a, you know, a a socially focused mission and um, they raised close to 1.3 million uh, last week. So it's certainly different than what we expected this time of the year would be at the start of the year, but we're still doing deals and uh, connecting businesses with, with customers. So it's great. That's fantastic. And it's great to hear that, you know, you're still able to help these companies, especially in such uncertain times. How do you think COVID-19 will change the investment sector? You mentioned a lot of smaller investors, for example, putting money uh, into these 
companies raising capital. Do you think that's going to be a theme that continues on in terms of you know, retail investors or smaller investors putting capital in and the large institutional investors shying away from the startup sector? It's a tough one to answer looking out to the medium to longer term. I, I, I think you know, larger institutional type investors, the, the, they invest, that's what they do. So at some point, they're going to be deploying capital to opportunities that they like. Again, I think predictably, what I'm hearing is that a lot of the funds have been protecting their portfolio companies and not not taking new meetings and, and not originating new deals. For angel investors, that's a tricky one because, you know, an angel investor is a very broad category. So they, you know, uh, are in many different shades and colors um, and have different things going on in their personal and investment lives. Uh, but what we've seen is in times of uncertainty, people are understandably more reluctant to commit, you know, the, the $10,000, $50,000, $100,000 check. But businesses that have a strong consumer proposition are still able to get large large numbers of investors to commit small amounts of capital and you know I, I think that that's probably been the uh, the encouraging advantage of what we do another observation that we'd make is that you know there's been a lot of retail investors that have gotten into the market recently during this period of volatility wanting to trade in the market ASIC released a report a couple of weeks ago about how much money had been lost by retail investors that were day trading for the first time because they'd seen such wild market swings. Although it's not great for the investors that have lost money, the encouraging trend that I observe from that is that retail investors are having an increasing appetite for risk. And we saw this with crypto over the last few years is that looking for opportunities to grow their wealth outside of what Australians traditionally have used, which you know is blue chip mining stocks, banks, and property. And that's what we need to do as a country. Um, we need to start looking for higher risk, higher return opportunities. And you would expect me to say this, but early stage startup businesses are the best place to do that for the economy. And you know we'll create jobs, will fund the businesses that will drive the recovery on the other side of this crisis. And equity crowdfunding, I think, has a huge role to play in that because, as I mentioned, people can take a stake in a business for a few hundred dollars. It's very, it's much easier to have a diversified portfolio approach to early stage businesses rather than in the old days, if you're an angel investor, you know, minimum investment might be ten or twenty thousand dollars. You know, you need a, a reasonably sized amount of capital to take a portfolio approach. You know, ten, fifteen investments at ten thousand, twenty thousand dollars a pop. Not everyone has that, but now, provided that we can maintain good deal flow, investors can take a diversified approach to start up investing for a few hundred or a few thousand dollars, which I think is really exciting. Absolutely. And, you know, given that virtual is a platform that connects investors and startups, you obviously see both sides of the table. Um, on the startup side, a lot of companies right now are understandably going through some difficult times in, in terms of cash flow, um, you know, being able to navigate the next couple of months. And I'm sure a few of them are thinking about raising capital. 
So have you been approached by any of these companies? Uh, what kind of advice are you giving to them in terms of raising capital in this current climate? Yeah, look, absolutely. We're, um, we're approached by companies daily and I suppose it's you know it spiked somewhat during the during the crisis, but certainly there's been a lot of businesses interested in what we do. The advice, look, I think the advice that is out there for um, that a lot of people are giving to startups at the moment is get really get absolute clarity on your cash burn, minimize uh, unnecessary expenditure, really kind of batten down the hatches, and preserve your runway for as long as possible. In terms of raising capital, it's a different environment now. So deal size is going to be smaller. Investors are looking for you know different things, or you know I think this endless pursuit of growth and growth at all costs um, is quite is questionable in this environment. I think businesses that are profitable and have a pathway to profitability and that are sustainable in a in a financial sense, but obviously in a broader sense too, but they're the ones that will really shine and I find it easier, somewhat easier to raise capital. But the, um, you know, the old days of an endless, you know, endlessly chasing growth with the belief that, that capital will be there to get you to the next stage, that, that, that's not sustainable anymore. So businesses really need to focus on, on being businesses and, um, and generating profits. That's awesome. Th thanks for the quick rundown on you know how COVID nineteen has affected your customers, your investors, and also uh, your company. So we'll wind the clock back now uh, to to your early days, Matt. Could you give us a bit of a rundown about where you grew up and uh, you know how you ended up being where you are today? So I've lived in Melbourne um, all of my life. I grew up in Carlton the son of a chef restaurateur. So Ligon Street um, in the 80s and 90s, it, the halcyon days, many people say. Um, most people I work with at the moment don't, uh, don't remember. But um, so my, my family's been involved in the hospitality industry for generations. And I suppose that's kind of informed somewhat my uh, business endeavors and my you know, professional focus. But I studied, I studied law. I worked as a lawyer at Holden Wilcox and then at Ashurst uh, for a while in financial services. I'd, I'd observed what was happening in the UK in the equity crowdfunding space pretty early on and made a submission to the Corporations and Markets Advisory Committee about the need for Australia to have an equity crowdfunding regime. Alan, my co-founder, who had co-founded Possible uh, at that time, also made a submission to that committee. And then the equity crowdfunding legislation took, uh, took several years to even look like it was going to be passed. And I remember discussing it with some of the partners that I worked for, telling them what was happening in the UK and them saying to me that that will never happen in Australia. It's, it's too risky and they're not going to open up this kind of investing to retail investors but here we are, and uh, Alan and I got chatting probably about four years ago, a bit over four years ago now, about how possible would play in the equity crowdfunding space. And we had a decision to make whether it would be another service offered by Possible or whether we would create something new. And we decided to create something new. And um, I think the key reason for that is Possible is a, 
uh, very well-known uh, reward crowdfunding platform, uh, one of the first globally to actually call what they were doing crowdfunding. But it's essentially an unregulated business. It, it doesn't have a financial services license. And there's a lot of stuff that we have to do and be aware of at Birchall um, that we didn't want to burden possible with. And also they're fundamentally different businesses. Uh, so we created something new. Um, we called it Birchall and here we are several years later and uh, helping great businesses do, do great things. That's awesome. I've actually uh, met Alan a couple of times. Great guy. And I think we sat on a round table with local government once um, when they were trying to yep. figure out the early days of, of equity crowdfunding. So, you know, awesome, awesome story you've got there. How has the transition from corporate world to startup world been like for you? And you've obviously grown up with a bit of that entrepreneurial blood and that entrepreneurial yep. background. So was it a big shock for you or was it, you know, oh, you were kind of expecting what you walked into? Yeah. Um... It's funny, I'd already got, I'd got out of private practice, funnily enough, to um, run a food festival. <laughs> so I, uh, you know, perhaps, perhaps a, a whole other podcast on this, but I'd taken an interest in cooking American barbecue and, um, <laughs> and, um, and uh, made some friends in that space. Had been to the states a couple of times, uh, down the deep south, and you know some of the the, the temples of um, of barbecue where people go and worship uh, smoked meat. And um, my wife and I kind of fell into organising this food festival. So I that was becoming a, a you know pretty uh, intense labour of love, but an intense uh, side project, and. I, you know, we'd started having children. I have three children and it was becoming increasingly obvious to me that long-term private practice as a lawyer probably wasn't consistent with what I wanted out of life, you know, and, you know, good home, home life and spending time with my, my family. So I decided to, to leave private practice and I was taking some contracting jobs, but also running the, the food festival. And so that was my kind of entry into, you know, or exit from, from corporate life was in, you know, going from being a financial services lawyer to, to running a food festival and then still kind of keeping my, my um, you know, toe in the water, if you like, with um, uh, contracting legal jobs, um, mainly at banks. And then Alan and I got talking about equity crowdfunding and um, and then I kind of got back into, you know, startup life, but but still as a lawyer. So I'm, I'm still a lawyer. I still, you know, perform a, a co-founding and general counsel role for, for Birchall, which is, you know, we have a, a pretty important legal compliance side of the business that I need to look after. But, you know, I also really love just working with lots of entrepreneurial people that are focused on doing great things and... You know, it's uh, been a, a windy road, but I, I feel like I've, you know, I've found the the role for me. Awesome. It takes us back to this early days of virtual as well. Uh, what was your first steps towards actually creating the company? Was it going after that financial services license or was it something else? Yeah, look, that, that was a big part of it. It's, it's a new regime. So, you know, th these things don't happen very often that a new financial service is created. So there was a bit of back and forth, ASIC, well, first of all, with the laws getting passed. So, you know, a lot of monitoring the uh, federal parliament 
website and uh, looking at the passage of the bills, which we became you know experts on for a while, and then engaging with ASIC about how they were going to uh, regulate and enforce the laws. Um, so ASIC typically writes a regulatory guide once laws are passed. Applying for a license was... Look, I'd done this before. I never, never for myself, but um, we, you know, had an understanding of the process that we needed to go through. But it, it's interesting because one thing is you need to demonstrate competence that that you have the appropriate skills and experience, which is tricky in Australia because you have to show that you have the right skills and experience to provide a service that's never been provided before. So, <laughs> um, not without its challenges, but. Thankfully, we, we were among the first seven to receive our license. We have a third director in the business, Adam Vars. Um, so he was head of equity capital markets at ANZ Securities for many years. So, you know, the three of us really kind of round out what we think is the, you know, the right skill set for a business like this. But then building our process, historically, you know, making a public offer of securities would cost a business as a public company, um, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars and, and months to prepare. So we needed to build a process um, that took a few weeks and cost as little as possible uh, because th- this this regime is for early stage businesses that, that aren't, you know, big and sophisticated with, you know, uh, teams of professional advisors to do something that has historically been very tricky and very expensive. And that, that's been a process of you know first principles iteration experimenting and you know we made some mistakes at the start but we learned from our mistakes and you know I think um, the team works really well together you know Alan's you know uh, peerless in his understanding of what motivates a uh, a crowd and how to position these offers in the market and you know Adam and I have been really focused on, um, you know, providing sophistication to these capital raises, but understanding that we're working with limited resources. So um, how do we do this? Make sure that we're managing risks, uh, complying with the law, but also achieving a good commercial outcome for people because it's tricky. And it seems like you've got the right founding team as well. Um, You know, someone who came from financial services, someone who has that law background yourself and Alan in the, in the tech space. What's the dynamic between the, uh, the founders like? You know, um, is, it, is there a lot of tension in there or do you usually get along harmoniously? Absolutely. We get along and we don't get along just the right amount because as you can imagine, there's, there's got to be a tension between you know, being commercially focused and getting the right outcome for your company but also balancing that with our obligations as a financial services licensee. So, you know, our role is to ensure that the offers are, are, are run in accordance with, with the Act and that we're not misleading and deceptive and all of the compliance things are, um, are ticked off and, and done correctly. We don't want companies to worry about this stuff, though, because we have a financial services license they just expect that we get that right. Um, so every campaign is assigned a campaign manager and the campaign manager is really the coach. Uh, we have a 10 week process and 
the campaign manager is there to keep a company engaged through that process, telling them what success looks like at various stages in the process, but keeping them moving along ultimately towards executing a successful crowdfunding offer. The role that, that I'm more involved in on the legal and compliance side is making sure that um, we're able to prepare an offer document and that the company is, is um, doing everything that it needs to um, to execute these offers in, in a way that complies with the law. And the fact that we've been able to host over 40 successful offers uh, since we launched in 2018. Um, you know, we did 14 in the last three months of 2019, last year. It's a high volume platform. It's, uh, you know, the, the, the process, it can absolutely be improved, but it's, um, it's working pretty well. Yeah, and that's really interesting because Virtual is a company that needs to comply with, you know, financial services laws, um, you know, regulatory uh, requirements. Most startups have that mentality of move fast, break things, you know, and that doesn't apply in your case. You, you can't really, well, in one sense you can, but on the other hand, you have to follow all these, all these uh, regulations. It, was it a lot of work for you getting a financial license? You know, was it a multi-month process or was it, you know, something straightforward or? No, it, it, it was... It was months. Um, I mean, look, it was years. Like if you count the the passage of, of the law and, um, you know, waiting for the for the regime, for the law to be passed ultimately. But yes, like we're, we're a financial services business, but we, the way that I describe us to companies is we're more a marketing company than we are a financial services business. We're, like we like to, you know, let all of the, the legal and regulatory stuff, although it's taken care of, it, it kind of sits in, in the background and you know we spent a lot of time on the user experience and design of the platform to make it as you know nice and frictionless as possible for investors that we're investing that 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 was really our focus is um having a good understanding of what we needed to do from a legal regulatory sense but then you know making it as beautiful as possible to work in a commercial sense could you walk us through what happens when a company decides to raise money to getting in touch with virtual and ultimately making that public offer? Because it sounds like you've, like you said, you've streamlined that process and made, and made it so cost effective to make a public offer when typically you'd have 100 page IMs, um, you know, you pay advisors millions of dollars to, to underwrite the offering, et cetera. So how, what's the process like? So it's essentially a 10 week process end to end. It, that can be shortened or lengthened, but it has three components, which I'll walk through. We generally allow about two weeks to set up the offer um, or, or the campaign, if you like. And that involves creating the company profile. And Birchall's, as a platform, structured a little bit differently to crowdfunding platforms around the world. We say that we're more company or issuer-focused than deal-focused. So you'll go to a lot of crowdfunding platforms and the prime real estate will be the, the live deals page. These are the deals that we've got live at the moment. We have that page, but that's not what we drive our traffic to. We focus on the company rather than virtual. So a company will create a profile and then maintain that profile, the same URL for their lifetime of using the platform. It's high level information. So we're only talking about the company, the team, the business model, nothing about the offer at this point. We're also talking about the, the, the marketing plan, and the PR media outreach plan. 
Once a company's completed all of that, then we move to the expression of interest stage. So an EOI is a time-based campaign and all the company's saying at this point is, hey, this is us, we're interested in raising money, would you be interested in investing in us? And we're taking full advantage of the relaxed advertising restrictions that crowdfunded offers have. So unlike other offers of securities, we can advertise these offers on any channel, which is pretty fundamental change to um, corporate and securities law. So uh, Facebook advertising, other digital advertising, digital marketing is really important, um, email lists. So we, we're building this list of qualified interest. The questions that we ask at the EOI stage is, why are you interested in the company? How much would you be willing to invest? Through gathering this data, we're able to tailor how we engage with that list of investors, but also provide a company with guidance on how much they may be able to raise. Having completed over 40 offers, our data is getting better and better. So we look at how a company performs during the EOI stage and then form a view about how much they could potentially raise once they get to the offer stage. So the EOI is typically run for three to four weeks although increasingly companies are telling us that a shorter campaign is better for a variety of reasons. And while the AOI phase is running, typically working with the company on the offer document gatekeeper process. So we have a template offer document, which we've adapted from ASIC's guidance, but basically working with the company to create the offer document. So they're in a position to provide a draft offer document to investors towards the end of the EOI phase. The reason for this is we don't value companies um, will form a view about pre-money valuation and, and other aspects of their deal, but we're just one data point. We feel that the most important uh, source of validation are the investors that will ultimately invest in the offer. So being able to share a document in draft form to Perhaps some of the larger interested investors is a really good way to sense check whether or not you've structured your deal and priced it appropriately. So then we move to the offer phase. So once a company's comfortable with all aspects of their offer, the offer will open. So we finalize our gatekeeper checks, which includes background checks on all of the directors, senior managers, reviewing the offer document to make sure that it complies, and then publishing the offer. All of the applications need to come through the virtual platform, but the offer runs for three to four weeks as well. Um, and again, companies are giving us feedback that they like shorter campaigns. During the offer phase, it's really important to get early traction. So these conversations that you have with EIs, EOIs before you launch are really important because they're likely to be the investors that will invest early on. But Crowdfunding campaigns, they all have a similar pattern. It's a U. They, a lot of activity at the start, then it drops off in the middle, and then it picks up at the end. So making sure that you get off to a really good start will we'll just set up the campaign to finishing strongly uh, later. So that's the process. That, that's great. Thank you. And for people who aren't familiar, uh, who are listening to the podcast, how do these investors uh, make money? And how, how does Virtual, in fact, make money out of these uh, raises as well? 
So Birchall's fees um, is pretty simple. We, we charged $900 for the expression of interest phase that I mentioned, uh, $1,900 to review and publish the offer document. And then if the offer is successful, we charge 6% of funds raised. Now, um, I forgot to mention that an offer needs a minimum target and a maximum target. So to be successful, it needs to be past its minimum target within the offer period. If it hits its maximum target, we have to close the offer. Um, the most amount that can be raised is $5 million every 12 months. Um, but we urge companies to set a maximum target at a level that they think that they can hit because we think that's best practice. Having a fully subscribed offer and turning people away um, is a great, a great message because it leaves the door open to doing something in the future. Absolutely. And for the investors, do they uh, get a return when the company exits? Well, absolutely. Um, the investors, uh, they receive ordinary shares. So they hold the same stock as other ordinary shareholders in the business. Um, it really depends on what the company does. So the opportunities to... Um, to realize your investment uh, if the company is is sold, um, uh, if the company lists and there's another liquidity event. Um, a service that we've been working on is uh, a, a secondary market, a liquidity facility for shareholders. Um, so we've applied to ASIC for relief to operate what's called a low volume market. Um, now, the this relief has limitations. You can only uh, facilitate 100 transactions and no more than one and a half million in aggregate value every 12 months. But what we're hopeful um, of is that companies will use this virtual trade facility to provide liquidity to some investors that want to realize their investments periodically. So, um, you know, illiquid, early stage um, investments, uh, you know, th this is the thing. It's like you invest in any early stage business. How, when am I going to see a return or how can I exit this investment? Um, we see this as a good opportunity to perhaps release the pressure valve periodically. You may have some investors that, uh, that want to or perhaps need to get out. Um, Hopefully, the majority of them would like to stay in for the long haul and, and realize the full value of the, uh, of the investment. Um, but similarly, you might have some investors that um, perhaps they missed out when you were raising money, and this is the only opportunity for them to get involved in the business. So um, it's a service that uh, we've spent a bit of time thinking about, and we think it kind of meets the particular needs of, of crowdfunded businesses. And... Um, Perhaps now's not the right time to be launching this because, um, you know, market volatility and, and whatnot. But um, I think when conditions normalize a bit more, it's a service that uh, we're looking forward to providing to companies so they can provide to their shareholders. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the secondary market seems to be picking up steam uh, in places like the US and the UK, more, more developed startup ecosystems where exits seem to be taking longer as well, past that 10-year mark, past that 11-year mark. So I, I think, you know, virtual's seems to be ahead of the curve when it comes to, you know, coming up with these new products and offers. So 
Uh, kudos to you guys. Uh, yeah, thanks, Jess. Before we end, uh, I've got two more questions for you. Sure. Uh, number one, since you see so many companies on a daily basis, what's your take on the tech industry in Australia? What do we do well and what can we do better? I think that we can do a lot better at, at funding these businesses, in which you would expect me to say, say this, but um, I think too many, too many businesses um, feel as though they need to go overseas to realize their plans. Um, and, you know, more often than not, we speak, you know, perhaps some of the, the most exciting businesses we speak to about potentially um, raising funds through equity crowdfunding is, um, you know, they see funding in Australia as an intermediate step and that their future investors will be um, offshore investors. Um, now that makes sense because, you know, in the States it's got the largest pool of, uh, you know, venture capital um, in the world. But I, I mean, from a, um, you know, uh, an Australian perspective, like what, why why should we um lose these opportunities to to other markets um i i think we need to get better at funding early stage businesses and then providing follow-on capital for businesses that um, should remain in australia i think um the covid pandemic has shown that um where you are uh, physically doesn't really matter as much in terms of working and servicing um uh, customers and, and working as part of a team. So I, I, I dare to dream of a future of Australian businesses that are world beating in their, um, in their markets um, against their competitors, but perhaps remain in Australia and are supported by an army of um, venture capitalists that will give them the capital they need to grow. So um, I think, yeah, we, we should, absolutely be encouraging businesses to take on the world, but why can't they take on the world from Australia? Um, so, yeah. Absolutely, and that's a great segue to my last question, which is being an Australian business yourself, what's next for Birchall? Um, look, we see lots of opportunities for us to do what we do in other markets. Um, I think COVID has been um, uh, an awakening, I suppose, or an acceleration of, um, you know, us conceiving of going to other markets. Um, you know, I liken it a bit to a, a pace car. Um, and it's a, it's a useful metaphor because really the cancellation of the Australian Grand Prix was the, the start of the COVID issue here. And um, I kind of think that we're under, the safety car is out at the moment. You know, there's these stimulus measures that are kind of giving everyone a bit of breathing room. Um, but, you know, the economy hasn't been cancelled yet. The race will start again. So it's an opportunity for businesses now to, you know, take the foot off the pedal a little bit, look around, assess the landscape, but what are you going to do when the race starts? And um, that's something that we're doing and that's something that we're encouraging all businesses to do is is look around and um, 
really consider the opportunities that that lie ahead because that there are opportunities ahead i think we've um averted hopefully you know most of the catas- catastrophic uh uh future that that or picture that was being painted for us um a couple of months ago um and you know this will end and then we all need to get back to what we were doing um and i think there will be such drive and enthusiasm once we're able to do that that you know there there are some great opportunities for for businesses virtual and you know and others and the other you know the other thing that um i think is great is just the acceleration of some trends you know i've mentioned work from home um you know but but so many other uh things in different um industries that have been accelerated by this crisis uh because you know perhaps the things that were holding us back um aren't so important anymore you know just looking at you know the advancements that were made in in telehealth um and you know online con- video co- consulting for doctors you know this is something that they've been talking about for over a decade and they're able to accelerate you know in days weeks um it's these kinds of changes that i think are ripe um for opportunities for for businesses to you know to take and um you know it's agile early stage businesses that see those opportunities and put teams together to to seize them um you know they're the ones that we want to help and um they're the ones that will you know make us a great economy Awesome. Matt, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Really enjoyed our, our chat and your insights. If someone wanted to get in touch with you to invest or to get their company on virtual, should they just go to your website? Yeah, go to the website or email me, matt at virtual.com. I love chatting with people and um, yeah, I've never regretted taking a meeting. So Awesome. Matt at virtual.com for all the uh, listeners out there. Matt, thank you again. Um, you know, Stay safe, stay well. And uh, I'm sure this, is, this isn't going to be the last that we hear from you. So... Thank you for being on the podcast. Excellent. Thanks, Jace.